This is the Washington Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Welcome, everybody, to tonight's Indivisible Town Hall with third congressional district Democratic congressional candidate, Marie Glusenkamp Perez. I'm your producer, Kat Pipkin. As everyone watching knows, the congressional race in the third district is garnering national attention. Uh, Republican incumbent Jamie Herrera Butler's failure to advance has pitted a Trump endorsed MAGA Republican against Marie Glusenkamp Perez, a tremendous Democratic candidate whom we're lucky to have with us here tonight. This is a really unique opportunity for folks to get to know the candidate. And because of that, we were flooded with questions in advance. We've worked to incorporate as many of those questions as we could into tonight's program. So we'll not be able to take any additional questions um, during the event. If you have uh, additional questions, you can send them in and we'll make sure to transfer those over to the campaign so they can get back to you. And with that, I will hand things over to my friend, Stephen Cox. Well, thank you, Kat, and thank you so much to everybody joining us here tonight. And Mariko is in Camp Perez, as I said before we began, been very much looking forward to this. How are you tonight? Oh, we're great. Yeah, we're just coming off a bunch of events. We're running on jet fuel here, so I'm excited to be with you all tonight. Well, you know, I, I want to kind of jump in with both feet because, as Kat mentioned, there is so much to discuss here. This is this is a race that is getting national attention. You are seen kind of as a bulwark against a Trump-endorsed MAGA Republican from being elected from Washington State. And you know, we're very much going to talk about specifics here tonight. But I'm just wondering, how do you see the stakes of this race? And, and why did you choose to run? Yeah, you know, so I live in rural Skamania County. And Looking around, I was seeing Joe Kent wallpaper uh, early, you know, January, February. People that should have had Jamie signs up in their yard had Joe Kent signs. And I watched some YouTube videos of this guy and realized, holy cow, you know, this is a guy with really bad ideas and really nice hair. And this could go south really, really easily. And just a firm belief that, you know, Democrats have been trying this approach with sort of pedigreed candidates and I, I don't think that's the solution in many cases to these MAGA Republicans. You know, um, I believe that Congress needs to look more like America. We need more people that work in the trades, rural voters, um, young families to deliver the results that we're missing. And, and so I, I believe that I was the candidate, am the candidate who can stop Joe Kent from representing us in D.C. And that's why I jumped in. We're going to talk, as I said, so many specifics. I just have to say nice hair and bad ideas could really serve as a really great p uh, compendium title for, for, for the modern GOP. I'm just going to believe that right there. Just my opinion, not yours. Uh, I do want to take a, a moment and talk about uh, you personally and just kind of let folks know about who you are, because you have a very unique background and story. You are a fifth generation Washingtonian on your mother's side. Uh, your father emigrated, uh, immigrated from Mexico. Tell folks a little bit more about your background. Yeah, so my parents met at Western Washington University up near Bellingham um, after my dad immigrated. And um, I actually grew up in Texas. Uh, my dad was the pastor of a Spanish language church down there, a lay pastor. And uh, I, I really respected the work that my parents did in our community. I think at one point my family had 13 cars on their auto insurance to ensure that you know members of the congregation could drive to work insured. Hmm. Um, and I really respected the work that my parents did for our community. Um, but I also believed that we need systemic change and we need people to stand up and, and fight for those. And, um, you know, my family uh, really believes in public service. My sister's a lawyer for a nonprofit organization. Uh, my brother's a surgeon at the VA. My my oldest brother was a, 
uh, actually a missionary for many years. And, um, you know, I uh, moved here. I knew I wanted to be in the, in the, in Washington state. Uh, I moved up when I was 18, got my degree in economics from Reed college. And um, I uh, met my husband when he was working under a car and I thought I've got to find something for that man to fix. I was a bike mechanic at the time and um, I uh, did find something for him to fix and ended up with a career path laid out. Um, when I met him, he was working in a one-man shop out of a Volkswagen van again, fixing people's cars in the street. Um, brilliant man, great businessman. Um, we went into business together and grew the business together. Today, it's a six-bay shop. We've got eight employees all together, and we purchased a small machine shop in 2020. Um, so really proud to provide you know, family wage jobs that people can be proud of in a respectful work environment that's um, uh, really focused on providing good jobs for our people. It's such an inspiring story, and not the least of which is it it led the two of you together, and I, I love a story like that. Um, you distinguish yourself as a, as a working-class rural Democrat. As you said, you're from Skamania, and you point out that you're the only general election candidate ever in Washington's 3rd Congressional District, not from Clark County. Talk about what all of this means to you. Yeah, you know, I think that, it, you know, there there's a general sense that rural Americans have been left behind, that we are, you know, people think like, well, if you were really so smart, you would have gotten out and figured something else out, you know, and it's so uh, toxic, that attitude that rural people are, you know, don't, aren't bringing stuff to the table and, and it's wrong. It's blatantly wrong. Um, you know, we are producers. We are the people that... Um, have a unique perspective on the world and it's valid. You know, the world does look a little bit different when you get your water from a well and your internet from a radio tower and you live on a gravel road. And then I think that's frequently a perspective that's missing from Congress. Um, we've had a substantial disinvestment and atrophy of rural infrastructure. You know, my kid's going to go to a, could very well be going to a school that has a, you know, a, the same HVAC system that was there in the 1960s. Um, and that's a problem, you know, um, I believe that we have been sending a lot of, you know, you know, God bless them. There's a lot of lawyers and doctors in Congress, and there aren't that many people that believe that fixing things is inherently noble. Um, and I believe that the trades are a path to a secure, you know, middle class existence. And, and we've got to be supporting kids in, in getting into those um, careers and being successful and giving them the skills to be entrepreneurs and, and building businesses for themselves. Trades and apprenticeship is, uh, I know, something that's a big area of focus to you, and I, I want to unpack that uh, quite a bit um, as we go down the line here. But I do want to take a moment and talk about your district, not just for people who don't live there, but for people who do live there, just to kind of give a sense of uh, what's going on here. So Republican Jamie Herrera Butler represented the district since 2011, uh, but since the primary, Cook's political report has moved the district from solid Republican to Republican, to lean Republican. And I'm wondering, what is your sense of where the third is politically right now? And, and do you see things shifting? I do. And, and I think the polls are backing that up, that um, there is a massive growth in the number of voters who identify themselves as independents. Um, people are feeling like the extremes of, frankly, both parties aren't serving their interests and in, in delivering for them in Congress. And so we're seeing a growth in independence. We're seeing people that are tired of the extremism and the Republican Party 
and the sort of MAGA, you're with us or you're against us, and just this sort of idea that we're at a cultural war with each other. Um, people are people are tired of that. You know, that I think is an effective marketing strategy for two, maybe four years, but anger burns hot and it burns out. And um, it's not a sustaining emotion. And so when we talk about building movements that have capacity for durability and sustainability, um, this kind of coalition building is is where it is. Like these critical thinking, critical dialogue is something that's missing. And I'm really honored at having this opportunity to to rebuild that. Well, not to put too fine a point on it, but who are some of the groups that you see coming together to form this coalition here? Well, it's, I mean, labor has been an amazing support. Um, that has been a huge encouraging to have those folks stand with me in this race. Um, I mean, and that's one thing that has just been an astonishing element is, you know, I, I'm a first time candidate at this kind of federal level and the amount of money that it takes to run these races is heinous. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it is, and, and it is entirely clear to me why, you know, having a trust fund would be a huge asset because I've had to stop away from step away from earning an income more or less for the last, you know, since January. And it's, it is not something that most people can do, you know? Um, and it really highlights why it is that Congress looks the way it does and it's a mess. Um, so, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it is a broad coalition. I mean, it's Bernie Kratz to never Trumpers is my understanding, united in a, in a belief in democracy. I should also point out, it's my understanding that uh, Jamie Herrera Butler's top fundraiser is actually supporting you. So I think that speaks to the, the breadth of all of that. Um, I want to shift gears and talk about specific issues here, and and we'll start with abortion because I know that abortion rights are very, very much driving this issue. And I'll just ask you, what are you hearing from people in the third on this issue? You know, that is one of the really interesting things is like we are saying that um, party affiliation may be less important than whether or not you're old enough to remember what illegal abortions look like. Mm -hmm. You know, people who have that lived experience of what it looks like do not want to go back. I mean, it is um, that transcends partisanship is this I, a belief in in um, a, a woman's right to determine what the best path for her is. And I mean, it's a slap in the face to have anyone say that the government is the one that ought to be making that decision for you. I can't think of anything more offensive than that level of government intrusion. This is something, obviously, that we are, are tracking, and, and we know that this is going to play a huge role in, in messaging. People are out on the doors talking about these sorts of things. Another thing that we're hearing are uh, rising costs, still very much an issue with voters, economic issues. Uh, I know that you feel this. You, you, you feel the pinch of this. Gas prices have come down more than 100 days in a row, I believe, um, but prices are still high year over year. So. I wonder if you could talk as you see them about some of the factors here, like corporate price gouging and, and what, what actions you would like to take here. Yeah. I mean, small businesses like ours are really feeling this pinch, you know, like the same box of gloves I paid $5 for in 2019. I'm paying $25 a box for now. And these are, I mean, I run through a pair of gloves every car I touch, you know? And so um, like, it is crazy to me. Like we're having meetings about rationing gloves and I can't think of anything more wasteful of our time and energy than, you know, and, and then you multiply that out a hundred times and you see like, this is a real drag on the economy, not having stability in pricing, not having, um, being able to make projections of what your costs are going to be the next month. That 
hurts. That instability is painful for so many people not knowing where inflation is going to go. And I think some of the things that are the scariest to me is that, um, you know, we're just right in America, the way that people really grow well tends to be getting their foot in the door of the housing market. And that's one of the big concerns for me is that this is going to undo a lot of the progress we've made in building home ownership rates. And, you know, um, we're seeing this all over the commercial real estate market of big corporate landlords coming in and snapping up um, properties and all cash deals. And there, you know, there, there it goes, right? We're, we are stuck in a position of being uh, forever renters. And it's, it is a huge mistake for our country. And it's, it's a huge um, burden uh, for our economy and our, our people. And so I think ensuring that as we're navigating inflation, that uh, federal agencies like, you know, the Farm Bureau loans, these these agencies are really focused on ensuring that uh, some of those key long-term impacts like homeownership uh, are insulated from some of these market pressures. We did get a number of questions about um, the uh, affordable uh, housing crisis. Um, we also got a number of questions about climate, which I know is near and dear to your heart. Uh, and and I'll, I'll ask you this question because this is something that has just come up recently. Those of us who have been outside have smelled it in the air. Wildfires. Uh, and, you know, and, and I know that they've hit your district particularly hard over the last several years. How much of a concern is climate change to voters in the third well, it's it's certainly increasing. You know, I remember, you know, six years ago, it was still up for debate, it seemed like. And now, you know, we all pretty much count on having to, like, bring out our air filters every August and keeping everybody inside. I mean, smoke, you know, wildfire smoke's a neurotoxin. It makes everybody feel crazy. Um, you know, the cats are all skittering around the yard and, you know, it's it's it is a nasty thing to be living with. And so I think it's brought it home in a real way. I mean, one thing that um, I don't know how many of you are in district, but, you know, it used to be the case that people drove across the Columbia River in the winters. Um, it, and, and that happened. Our, our oldest voters. Remember. Meaning that it froze over so you could drive it. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And, um, you know, that's one of the issues is that, like, our working memory is so short that so many of us forgot that that ever happened. Our winters are warming. Our climate is weirding. Um and we're definitely seeing it. You know, I'm on my second term as a supervisor of the Soil and Water Conservation District for Underwood, uh, which is Klickitat and Skamania County. And so that gets into the dry side. And 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 there are certainly water security issues uh, moving forward. And you know, I'm I'm one of those people that really believes that many of our biggest wars going forward will be fought over water. And yeah. we need to invest in the kind of technology that can ensure that we have, and especially here in the Pacific Northwest where we have more reliable water, um, we are gonna see a lot of migration from uh, other states in America into Washington state. And, and we need to be proactive in managing our water and ensuring that um, water usage is being directed towards its best use. Yeah, I, I think this is something that I'm hoping that the, the best and brightest minds are, are thinking about, because this is certainly something that is, is coming our way uh, as a place that is water rich for now. Um, you know, there's going to be a lot of money. Development of things like clean energy and the likes. Um, how are you seeing those dollars apportioned? Um, yeah, that is that is definitely a concern. I'm 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 a little bit of a contrarian in some regards when it comes to electric vehicles. I think the the biggest 
issue um, is actually the availability of minerals for batteries. And um, I'm actually a huge proponent of a plug-in hybrid um, because most consumers don't drive more than 30 miles a day. And so when you see these, you know, like the Tesla Plaid with a 400 mile range, I mean, that is the environmental equivalent of a Hummer, right? That is, you know, that could have had 20 different plug-in electric. And when you talk about market penetration and cap, you know, reducing carbon use, that's how we're going to do it. Um, because the limiting factor often is these batteries and uh, and battery technology. And so, you know, part of it is ensuring that we have um, very clear thinking and very clear policy um, on where we're directing our spending. And it's also ensuring that those things are going to develop American jobs and American manufacturing. You know, right now, the vast majority of our solar panels are imported from China. We have the capacity to make those here. We need to have um, a, a, a real native industry for growing these and ensuring that those are family wage jobs, that they're produced with clean energy. Most of China's energy comes from coal. Um, and so by bringing those back, we can insulate uh, and, and grow our economy. Put a pin in that because I have a very specific listener question about that in just a moment. But I do want to ask you about a passion project of yours, which is moving away from plastics packaging. Um, This is, I I think, a bigger deal. I would say it's a bigger deal than most people recognize. But I think more and more people are starting to recognize the urgency of this, that really we don't recycle as much plastic as we are told that we do. Talk about this problem a little bit and how you see some solutions. Yeah, I mean, plastic packaging is more or less a farce. I mean, um, and, you know, in Washington State, um, we have excellent uh, recycling facilities for cardboard and paper. So I'll just dive back and get a little bit personal. You know, I was recently pregnant and, you know, one of my preoccupations and when I was pregnant was a study came out showing that almost every placenta surveyed had microplastics in it. And Mm. those microplastics secrete hormone disrupting chemicals and endocrine disrupting chemicals. And and the effects aren't really known, um, but we are seeing a lot of really troubling changes uh, in in kids, like the earlier onset of puberty, for instance, could very well be linked to microplastics. Um, And, you know, go to the grocery store, just, just do a little experiment, go to the grocery store, check out the laundry detergent section. You can hardly buy laundry detergent that comes in a box, a cardboard box anymore. They're almost all coming in these big plastic jugs that are single use, can't be recycled at all. Um, and, you know, there's a real environmental cost to that. And and we have a huge solution waiting right here in Washington State, paper and cardboard production. That is the solution to plastic packaging. It grow, It's you know, it can be renewable and sustainable. It can grow family wage jobs. It can support our local industries. I mean, this is a win win for the environment and our local economy. Speaking of this uh, middle class worker, uh, you know, the, the way in which this all sort of fits together, you have been talking quite a bit about uh, how jobs and wages are a concern in your district. I know you're a big advocate of apprenticeship and, and skills training programs. In fact, I know that you hire uh, directly out of apprenticeship programs. Talk a little bit about how you would like to expand some of those programs. Yeah, I think expand and support. You know, I think um, they are they are a, a gateway to a really um, viable, durable, you know, middle class life. And 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 not to like aggrandize this at all, but like let's talk about uh, you know you want to talk about a green revolution. I mean, we have got to expand mentally our 
consideration of what it means to have a green job. Like green jobs are not just running recycling facilities. It is the mechanic that stops oil from going in the river because your oil leak has gotten fixed. It is an electrician wiring in a heat pump to your house. It is someone putting spray foam insulation into your attic. I mean, these are the green jobs that are going to incrementally help us avoid climate catastrophe. And we've got to start supporting kids and pursuing these jobs. I mean, these are uh, very clear um, paths to a great life. And I think often our education system has sort of told a lot of kids, you know, what you're good at is not good enough and you really need to go to, you know, you need to pursue a four-year college degree. And I think that's so toxic. And uh, we've seen that so many of our, um, I mean, I listen, I get it. Like running a trades program in a high school is expensive. There's a lot of liability insurance involved in having a 14-year-old under a car lift. Um, but, you know, we had a, a really strong program um, one of our earliest interns, it was a program that actually paid for the liability insurance to bring in a 16 year old into our shop and help them get some uh, on, you know, on the job experience. And so it's those kinds of uh, projects that can give se- kids a sense of possibility and self-regard and, and uh, understanding of how to get into these programs. And we really need a federal investment to ensure that we're returning to those real prestige institutions again that uh, pump out the the brightest and best of our tradespeople. So kind of pulling all this together in, in a rather grand philosophical question, we, we did have somebody ask you if you consider yourself to be a small a pro small business Democrat. I think you clearly do. Um, you pay a living wage um, at your business. Your lowest paid employee just bought a house. So here's the big, this this is the big $64,000 question. How do we make this a norm again in this country, in this state, where working class people in this country can thrive again? Is it is it a matter of strengthening unions? Is it more manufacturing? Is it is is it all of it all together? It's all of it all together, but it's 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 been so disappointing to see the the attack of the PRO Act and these things that help people organize and join together to ensure that work is respected and compensated. I mean, there are so many games that are getting played with people who are working hard and it's not right. And we need champions to stand up and say, you know, work needs to be compensated and respected. It's leadership is what you're saying. It's leadership, it's platform, it's solid policy, you know, and it's, it is, um, you know, it's having the right people at the, at the, at the table, you know, um, I think, uh, um, it, it, it really matters that we have, um, small independent you know here's the thing when you're running a small business it's really hard to find time to go to these meetings and to be on the councils and to participate in a way where you're helping shape educational policy and you know because you're busy running your your business and taking care of your customers and and so oftentimes it's the biggest dogs who get to sit on these councils and we are missing out on a huge sector of our economy because we're not including small business owners Another issue facing working class people is, as you mentioned earlier, affordable housing. And, you know, we know this is not just an issue in the third um, and it's not just an issue across the state. Um, And it also is not just an issue in urban parts of Clark County, but also in rural areas now, too. How do you think we address this? I think it's a supply and demand issue. You know, it goes back to like, do people have jobs that pay enough? You know, do they have this ability to like get these mortgages? It's mortgage policy. It's also, you know, I when I built our, when we built our house, um, you know, the bank was not going to give us a loan to build a house for few that had fewer than three bedrooms. I mean, they just aren't financing starter homes anymore. 
Um, and that's a really, there's just a really big missing middle. Um, so there's, you know, there's a housing policy element. And there's also the fact, I mean, how many people here have tried to hire an electrician or a carpenter in the last six months? I mean, the wait lists are long. We do not have enough skilled labor to execute these, pol- you know, to execute these um, very necessary construction projects. And so, you know, it's, it's, um, it's both ensuring that people have access to these family wage jobs and that these, you know, um, they're able to buy the houses they're building. I want to talk, uh, shift gears uh, very quickly and talk about uh, money in, in, in campaigns. Uh, in your campaign ad, you highlight the need to get rid of uh, big money, get it out of politics. And we know that there was a ton of money poured into your uh, primary. And I know that you don't take corporate PAC money. So I wonder if you could just talk briefly about how you see the impact of outside spending on your race. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, and the primary was really like a such a, you know, I, I was outspent 40 to one in the primary. Um, and we saw all kinds of funny money coming in to try to pull different candidates in different positions through the race. And a lot of, um, uh, I would say, dark money coming in. Um, and now we're seeing, you know, um, you know, the, the, the trackers showing up at, at my events, they're probably here now, you know, they're not being funded directly by the Joe Kent campaign in many time, many cases, they're being funded by um, auxiliary Republican groups, interest groups, groups that, you know, maybe the plastic packaging industry is here, who knows? You know? <laughs> Likely, <But> yeah. <laughs> you just never know who, who um, you know, whatever you're trying to do, there's somebody trying to push back. And so, I mean, what it means is that I need all of you sincerely to be here pulling for me and listening to to my platform and and you know money is a megaphone and sometimes it takes a lot of work to dig underneath what the loudest megaphones are saying and understand what's really going on and so i really appreciate all of your commitment to coming here and listening and taking you know an hour out of your days to hear uh, hear about these issues I think one of the reasons why people are uh, paying such close attention to your race is because of the threats to our democracy. And I think the threats that your opponent um, represents. And I think maybe some of the best ways to unpack some of these threats is, is to just talk about um, some of the things that your opponent represents. We know from recent polling that some of what people find most concerning about him are his threats to our freedoms, specifically his support of a national ban on abortion with no exceptions, and uh, also his intention to eliminate mail-in voting. How do you think about these threats? Man, it is it is just crazy to be running against someone who thinks that Lauren Culp is our governor. I mean, <laughs> they, just total divorce from reality and, and a fact-based world is really frightening you know and this is not somebody walking around this is the nominee for a federal office and the platform that's given him to spread this misinformation and lies and it is it is really gotten serious um and um you know you're you're talking about uh, you know the attack on some of our most fundamental rights the rights to bodily autonomy and and, and deciding what your reproductive choices are. I mean, it's just crazy to me that these folks are inserting themselves into the most personal decisions that can ever be made. 
There are, of course, a host of other <laughs> concerns yeah. that people have about him. I mean, you have an ad detailing a lot of these uh, concerns that he wants to privatize Social Security, that he believes the 2020 election was stolen, that he uh, he had a campaign consultant who is connected to the Proud Boys. What else do you think people should know about your opponent? Well, you know, I think the the crazy thing, if you look at his Twitter, um, which mm, put your gloves on, um, <laughs> exactly. like his most popular tweet claims that we should be seizing the property of Bill Gates because of his support for vaccine research. Hmm. I, I, that is not even a Republican belief. I mean, that, that is when you don't believe in mail-in voting, you don't believe in someone's right to personal property, and, and you don't believe in the rule of law. I mean, that is not a Republican. That is a fascist. And it has gotten so dire. Um, I mean, I, you know, there there was a time when I felt like I was like a little, you know, sticking my finger in, in the dike to, to hold back this. And it's so encouraging to have all of you guys see, you know, uh, all of these names on the screen and, and, and feel the support and feel all of you guys fighting this fight with me. Thank you so much. Well, I think people absolutely recognize just how important this is. And I mean, if you uh, want to hear more about Joe Kenton, many of you don't. And as Marie says, put your gloves on if you do. Uh, do check out his Twitter feed and go to his website. Um, it is it is quite something. Um, all of this is really just to demonstrate just how stark I think the choice is this fall. And, and that's going to bring us to our first audience question. So and what you and I have talked about this still a, a little bit already. What is your strategy to persuade non-MAGA Republicans to vote for you? This is Judge Janet uh, Brigenheyer. And then Walker Murray asks, what are the key issues that you found that unite Democrats, independents, and moderate Republicans in the district? Yeah. Um, hi, Janet. Um, <laughs> um, so uh, the, the things that we're finding that are, are most offensive, I think, to moderate Republicans are election denying. I mean, that is that is the foundation of democracy and the rule of law and our literally the foundations of our republic. And so to have somebody on the ballot who um, does not believe in uh, in our elections and, and in very clear facts about who our governor is, even I mean, that was not even a squeaker, you know, right. that is that is very concerning to many Republicans, you know, so many Washingtonians love our mail in voting. They love paper ballots. I mean, paper ballots are the gold standard in election security, you know, and to hear someone champion this idea that we're going to go back to voting in person at the polls. I mean, talk to anybody who does shift work about that idea. I mean, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Um, that That is a huge step backwards. And so, you know, the strategy for bringing over moderate Republicans is telling them what Joe Kent really thinks, bringing his own tweets back to him, um, talking about the impacts on our society. If we go back to voting, standing eight hours in line uh, to vote, if we dismantle Social Security, you know, if we privatize um, Medicare, I mean, th th these are these are things that are our sacred obligations. And to hear someone say that they should be traded on the stock market is just offensive to, um, to, 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 to so many people, regardless of their political affiliation. And so it's focusing on the nuts and bolts on this sort of pocketbook issues of what makes communities work, um, rural infrastructure, um, 
you know, reproductive freedom, election security. Those are the things that matter to all of us. The quality of schools, crime. I mean, these are things, you know, and, and Joe Kent's over here spending so much time talking about how, you know, we need to arrest Fauci for murder and the Chinese invented climate change and all, all these ideas that are not relevant to our daily lives. You know, it's it's like we could spend all our time talking about why these conspiracy theories aren't real, but in the end, they're not going to improve our quality of life. And that's why they're irrelevant to most voters. And so it's presenting the very stark contrast between a conspiracy theorist, Joe Kent, and myself, a small business owner who believes in fixing things and getting our economy back on the right track. Yeah, well, well put. I mean, that really is where the rubber meets the road. I mean, you know, the opposition to mail-in voting, you know, the the the, the threats to election integrity, the the threats to our schools, reproductive freedom. I mean, it all really just it speaks for itself, as you're saying. Um, next question comes from Jenna Jenna Manchester. How will you find it? And you've talked about this a little bit already. How will you find a balance of serving the differing needs of both rural and urban regions of CD three? Yeah, I think it. it you know, we all have the same interests. Like the lens that we evaluate the impact on is different. You know, wildfire smoke is maybe a little bit more crispy for us in Skamania County, but you know, folks in Clark County absolutely bear the impacts of a denoted hillside and water quality and all those things that happen after a wildfire. Um, and so, you know, the sort of symptoms are different for us, but the solutions are the same. You know, the solutions are pivoting to clean energy, to cleaning up our woods, those sorts of pragmatic solutions. And so I think what we focus on and what we talk about varies by the audience, but the solutions to these symptoms um, are the same. And, uh, you know, it's, um, I, I think that's um, an important thing to keep in mind. Danielle Getz asks, what is your plan? To, I know this is a big issue uh, in the third. What is your plan to replace the interstate bridge? I believe this is the I-5 bridge over the Columbia River that connects Washington and Oregon. Yeah. Um, listen, like I, as a business owner, I, I do not look at my 80-year-old roof and think, oh my God, what an asset. I mean, that is a live <laughs> you know, Like I don't wait for it to collapse and take out a lift with it. You know, you fix it when you have the opportunity. Right. And that's exactly what we need to do. Um, and Joe Ken has been very clear that he is not going to fight for our federal tax dollars to come back. He's going to let our dollars go out and solve some other state's problems. Um, that bridge is an economic lifeline. It is a um, it is it is a a, a, a muscle, and and we we cannot wait for things to get worse. The solution here is to ensure that the federal we we get as fair a deal as we can to get those federal dollars back and replace the bridge. And that while we're replacing it, it's creating family wage jobs for Washington state families and growing our capacity for uh, the construction projects that we need to revitalize our infrastructure. And that brings back a lot of the talking points that we were discussing earlier about uh, building up the workforce and and, and unions and, and labor and all of that. Um, Valerie Orr, uh, ask, what is your stand on school libraries required to ban or remove books on certain topics? This is very much in the news right now. Yeah, that is, uh, I mean, I think the reality speaks for itself. Like we are losing great teachers left and right. You know, we have a massive teacher shortage and it's because we're not treating them respectfully. You know, we're coming and sticking our thumb in. And, um, you know, I, 
these are highly trained uh, educators, these, you know, in many cases, master's degrees. And to have this idea that we're going to have this sort of top-down governance is, um, it's a mistake. It's a mistake, and it's driving a lot of good people out of the education space. Charlotte Lardy asks, can you speak to the systemic racism in Clark County and what ideas you have to mitigate harm caused by racial injustice? And I I maybe would expand that a little bit further. We know that there is uh, a great deal of white supremacy um, down in uh, southern Washington. And I I wonder how you might speak to that. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty horrifying to see the Proud Boys gain currency in our district. And I think that is undeniably horrifying. And, um, you know, it, it comes back to um, really having a community dialogue and, and accountability, um, putting forward leaders that, that see the world uh, in, in its true light and not the sort of conspiracy-laden extremists like the Proud Boys. Um, you know, it's, it's true that it's, it's, it is difficult out there and, and um, we need to invest in schools. Uh, we need to invest in, in our teachers and ensuring that we have um, representation that looks like our district. What, expand on that a little bit. When you say representation that looks like your district, how do you mean? Well, you know, people that work for a living, um, people that are um, reflective of the diversity of our communities, um, you know, economically, uh, culturally, I mean, all of those things are important to have a, a body that actually represents the district. Liz Lambert asks, how available will you be to your constituents? I know you said in a recent interview that you thought uh, one of the places where Jamie Herrera Butler came up short was in not offering in-person town halls or enough of them. What is your plan there? Yeah, I am fully committed to having in-person town halls. I think that was a, a huge mistake because that is what it means to be a representative. It means to be available and accountable. And, um, you know, we're not always going to agree on everything, but I have an obligation to hear you. And that's that's what it comes down to. So I, I very much believe that is an obligation of elected officials. And related to that, uh, Deborah Di Piazza asks, how can we bring back civil discourse? Uh, I think we've seen civil discourse um, degenerate uh, at some of these town halls. And so um, she asks, how can we model real listening and real communication? Um, I, I would say dumping Twitter would be a start, but that's just me. I, I spend probably too much time on that. But, but what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to ask yourself, when is the last time you talked to someone you don't agree with? And what are the spaces that you're going to when you interact with those people um, in a way where you, you know, you, you, you need to get along, you know, um, join a book club with people with different perspectives. You know, um, I think I think that we have gotten so polarized and we've all found um, groups that all think just like us. And it's damaging because, you know, it, it, it doesn't just affect um sort of the fabric of our society, but it affects our own ability to communicate about why we believe what we do and think critically about how we came to that conclusion. And I think we're all so cloistered in these little kind of interest groups of people. And, you know, my parents are Republicans. Um, one of my brothers is, and, and it's important that you have people in your life that you respect who think differently than you and, and that you can fight with respectfully um, and challenge your own belief systems. 
Um, I think that, yeah, I think a lot of social media has been like so damaging to social fabric. I think, you know, places like Twitter, everyone's just looking for kind of a quick hit to, 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 to get in and out and yeah, get a hot take in. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, we we have this 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 sort of romanticized notion of you know the the classic vision is Tip O'Neill and and Ronald Reagan walking arm in arm after you know a long day of disagreeing about policy, but still getting together for a drink at the end of the day. And I'm not advocating for alcohol use, but I'm saying maybe something along <laughs> those lines could you know kind of bring us back together. Uh, so uh, this one's very personal to you, I know. Uh, what is your vision for excellent? This is from Linda Morrow. What is your vision for excellent child care in this country? And and by that, I assume she also means affordable and accessible. Um, what are your thoughts here? Yeah. So one in ten child care facilities has shut down since 2019 permanently. I mean, we have lost eight astonishing amount of our uh, capacity and a good friend of mine runs a daycare facility in Washington state. And she told me the state of Washington has not printed the regulations on running a childcare in six years because the rules change so frequently. And so there's this whole cottage industry of figuring out how to keep up with um, regulation. Uh, and it, Listen, that's not sustainable. What has what keeps children safe has not changed in those six years. Um, so we need a real support for these folks who are trying to run these businesses. I, I and I and and there's not a panacea. There's not going to be one option that works well for everyone. You know, some people are going to like pay grandpa to stay home. You know, some people are going to find a, a employer based uh, childcare. Some people are going to find community based or have a neighbor. You know, there's so many different ways that it can um, work well for so many families. And that's why I think things like the child tax credit are hugely important because it allows for the diversity of needs. Uh, and I also think, you know, we know that children's brains under six are developing so fast. I mean, that is a critical point in their lives. And to say that we don't support teachers until they're teaching kids above six years of age, that does not match the science. So that's why I support public service debt forgiveness for um, educators serving the under six crowd as well. We have one final question and it comes from Ronald Eby and he asks, how can I help even though I have a hearing impairment and I'm not very mobile and I don't drive, I do give money. So I ask you, how can Ronald help and then how can others help? Well, Ronald, I'm really, really appreciative of you chipping in. Thank you so much. I know, I know money does not grow on trees and it means so much. All these folks who have sacrificed your avocado toast so you can chip in on this campaign. Thank you. <laughs> Um, and there are so many ways that we need help. So, um, in your instance, like postcard writing would be wonderful. Um, you know, and, and here's, you know, the most valuable asset you have is in many cases, your network. And so talking to any low propensity voter, you might know, because they often know other lower propensity voters. That's a goldmine talking to any moderate Republicans, you know, we need your help building that coalition. Um, and so uh, those are just some of the things that come on uh, off the top of mind. Yeah. Uh, and there's a really robust online intake form on our website for volunteers. Uh, that's marieforcongress.com. And it'll kind of tell you, you know, and here's the other thing. 
you have special, I, I would imagine you might have special uh, relationships with other people in the hard of hearing community. And so maybe that's an area you could exercise influence on my behalf to reach out. So um, whatever group you're a part of, you know, your veteran, you know, veterans, your church group, your book club, your tennis, whatever it is, I, I need your help reaching out to the people you know best to ensure A, they get their ballots in and B, they understand what's at stake in this election. Everybody has a role to play at marieforcongress.com. Before I let you go, um, I'm just going to ask you as somebody who owns an auto repair shop. So mm-hmm. you, you know when somebody brings in a car, right? And they're yeah. like, it's been making this noise. It's been making this noise for, for, for months now. And they get it in there and it won't make the noise when they bring it to you. You do believe us, right? You know, we're not nuts. Oh, yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I, you know, and I, I, but I also make it, you know, the intermittent issues are the hardest ones to find. But the thing, you know, the story I love the most is somebody that was like, literally had a box of tennis balls in their trunk. And sort of- <laughs> I see where this is going. Let's <laughs> <laughs> <Just> make sure. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I had gravel in the, the top of my oh, yeah. uh, wheel weld. And oh, we're yeah. like, what is this? That does sound concerning. We have a gravel driveway. When are you going to yep, do yep. So uh, before I let you go, any final words? Well, I'm so grateful um, for you folks for putting this together and bringing all of your um, b- broad range of questions and interests and um, really su- supporting me with thinking critically about some of these issues. And I, I sincerely appreciate you guys taking the time to listen. You know, this is Listen, like Joe Kent is the most extreme candidate we have ever seen nominated in Washington state. And getting people like this out of office is a lot more work than it is to stop them from getting in. So let's not have any regrets on November 9th. Like let's let's leave it all on the field, so to speak, and and really pull for this. And I'm so encouraged and inspired by all of you standing with me in this. I'm so grateful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I cannot say thank you enough. Um, well, I want to say thank you, Marie Glissenkamp-Perez, for taking your time uh, tonight. I know that you are extraordinary, uh, extraordinarily busy. You're running a campaign. You are a young mom. You have a full-time business. So just thank you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. All right. Take care. And that'll do it for this week. The executive producer of the show is Kat Pipkin. If you would like to see a video version of this podcast, head to facebook.com slash podcast. The email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks to Lori Kowal. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. I'm Stephen Cox, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.